13 through 19, and from the Old Testament prophet Zechariah 3, um, 1 through 8. So prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then, but now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. And remember that the heavenly father to whom you pray has no favorites. He will judge or reward you according to what you do. So you must live in reverent fear of him during your time here as temporary residents. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. And Zechariah 3.1 Then the angel showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. The accuser Satan was there at the angel's right hand, making accusations against Joshua. And the Lord said to Satan, I, Lord, reject, I, the Lord, reject your accusation, Satan. Yes, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebukes you. This man is like a burning stick that has been snatched from the fire. Joshua's clothing was filthy as he stood there before the angel. So the angel said to the others standing there, take off his filthy clothes. And turning to Joshua, he said, See, I have taken away your sins, and now I am giving you these fine new clothes. Then I said, They should also place a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean, priestly turban on his head and dressed him in new clothes while the angel of the Lord stood by. Then the angel of the Lord spoke very solemnly to Joshua and said, This is what the Lord of heaven's army says. If you follow my ways and carefully serve me, then you will be given authority over my temple and its courtyards. I will let you walk amongst um, these others standing here. Listen to me, O Joshua the high priest, and all you other priests. You are symbols of things to come. Soon I am going to bring my servant, the branch. In the weeks ahead, we're going to go deeper into what does it mean to be a priest? And equally as important, what does it look like practically to be a priest, to serve your friends at UGA, at UNG, wherever, as a priest, to take advantage of priestly opportunities right in front of you. But before we have any of those other conversations, I felt like there's a big elephant in the room that we've got to deal with first. And it's this. Do people like you and I have any business being priests? Does somebody who's thought the thoughts that you've thought today actually have any hope of being helpful to the world? A helpful, non-anxious presence? Does somebody with like the fresh memories of shame or regret that, that you and I have, do we have any business being holy, set apart by God for, we're like on the special teams of humanity, set apart for a very specific task? Someone like you, someone like me, come on. If we don't see a name and talk about this elephant, I think what will happen is most, if not all of this room, will pre-disqualify yourself. And you'll hear this stuff and you'll think, well, that's just, those are, that's for the good Christians. Maybe another time, maybe another year, not me, not now. There's no way I could be qualified. So the question we're going to talk about tonight is, are you qualified to be a priest? Let's pray.
Jesus, do the very thing that you most love to do in these next few minutes together here in this room in Athens, Georgia tonight. Show yourself to us. Let us feel your nearness. Let us feel your presence and make it change us. And do this because it brings a smile to your face and it brings a smile to ours too. We pray in your name. Amen. Have you ever had that awful, awful experience of showing up to make a presentation in your class or to play a song at an open mic night or maybe back in the day to do an act at a talent show or maybe to ask a girl out or ask a guy out? But the person who went right before you absolutely crushed it. Like the best PowerPoint UGA has ever laid eyes on. People were crying it was so good. Or the person who played right before you took the stage at the open mic night is like undiscovered talent like a future Ben Rector, someone like this guy is going to go big. And you're the act that followed him. People are crying. The windows are still rattling from the applause. People are just beside themselves. And then the MC looks down at the clipboard and doesn't even pronounce your name right and says, and next up we have, and you're hoping in that moment, oh God, please let me get out of here. Is there time to sneak out a side door and maybe they accidentally skip ahead to the act after me? And you're standing there and you've got to get up and give your act, which all of the sudden, though you thought it was pretty great earlier, all of a sudden you're immediately thinking, this is garbage, it's worthless, this is terrible. And you might even like argue with the people, no, really, let's end on a high note, it's a great night, why do we want to dampen people's moods? I'll go next week. Your stomach drops, and you want to get out of there. I don't know if one of those three or four examples has been something you've experienced, but we've all experienced that sensation of showing up, feeling like we're well prepared, like we've got something good to share, and the person who goes ahead of you puts you to shame before you've even gotten up. And by comparison, what they've crushed leaves you feeling like garbage, feeling low. All of a sudden, the great things you thought you had aren't that great anymore. If you felt that, that feeling That's the feeling of being unholy in the presence of true holiness. We all might feel holy and good and righteous and clean, just fine, but the act that we follow, it cuts us down to size pretty quickly. That feeling is the feeling of being unpresentable in the presence of just magnificent beauty. It's the feeling of being unprepared in the presence of penetrating scrutiny. Someone who knows what they're looking for, they're they're a critic, they know what to look for, and they're looking at you. Peter says in the passage Ruby read, verse 15, you must be holy in everything you do. Just as God who chose you is holy, The Bible says, God says, 
you must be holy because I am holy. And again, when we're in those situations, we may come into them thinking, flawless, pretty good, I'm not that bad. And then we see true perfection. Then we see the real deal. And immediately realize we're just TCU. (laughs) We're not a number two, three, or four team in the nation. We're garbage. (laughs) So something similar happens in scripture. We lay eyes we brush up against, we get a glimpse of, or we hear word of an effortlessly holy, beautiful, good, perfect God. And all of a sudden, we truly know who we really are and who he really is. We want to crawl into our shells and hide, right? Get out of there, which is the way that pretty much everybody in Scripture who encountered the presence of the living God, crawl into a hole. Turtle head goes right back in the shell. Hide. Leave me, I'm unclean. And Peter says, you must be holy in everything that you do. And God says, be holy for I am holy. And Peter says on top of that, things will come up in the next few weeks. You are part of a chosen people, chosen people, Consecrated, set apart as different, as special, unique in the world. God has set you apart as special. You're a priest. And in like a bolt of lightning, we immediately feel when we hear this stuff, maybe you're feeling it now, a word in a syndrome and a phenomenon y'all told me about. I hadn't heard the word. I'd certainly felt the feeling, imposter syndrome. One of y'all introduced me to that about a year or two ago. As soon as you were about a sentence or two into explaining what it felt like, I was like, oh, I feel that all the time. Y'all tell me all the time you feel it. You feel it in your program. You feel it in your sorority. You feel it as a Christian. Like everybody else got a memo that you missed. Everybody else is ahead of you and you're not. That you're an imposter. Now, there's not a ton of us who are trying to be imposters. That is a thing, right? I mean... That's a thing, intentionally living a double life or intentionally knowingly having two lives, kind of keeping this one under wraps, letting people see this life. That happens, happens to us, but for a lot of people, it's not an intentional thing. In fact, we're perhaps doing the best we can. It's just that deep down we know our best isn't good enough and your best just doesn't cut it. And not even good enough for other people's standards but not good enough for your standards. Certainly not good enough for God's standards. And we know it. At least our gut feels it, right? So the second part of what Ruby read earlier is technically a vision that the prophet Zechariah had. A dream. I think it's much better categorized, though, as a nightmare. And the reason I think it's better categorized as a Nightmare is because the role that Joshua, who's the, the main character in this dream that Zechariah is having, the role that he, that he carried. He was a priest. In fact, he was the head priest, the high priest, kind of like a pope-like figure. Everybody knew 
who's, who Joshua was. And you would have whispered about Joshua, like your parents would have told you, man, he has a direct line to heaven. He's near to God. He's holy. He's different than us. He's the one who offers sacrifices on behalf of your sins. He's so near to God, he's equipped to help you draw near to God. That's how every set of eyeballs, that's what, that's what they would have seen in Zechariah. It's what every heart would have thought when they, sorry, when they, when they thought about Joshua. But Joshua knew another reality, right? Because Joshua is a sinner just like the rest of us. He's a son of Adam just like the rest of us. He limps. He's broken. He feels like an imposter just like the rest of us. People call him holy. And I wonder if he giggles inside or if he rolls his eyes inside or if he just gets cynical inside because he thinks, oh, if you just knew the half of it. If you knew what I think about as I go to bed or as I commute to work. So I think it starts at least as a nightmare. Joshua's a guy who's not just, no, he knows he's not just living up to other people's standards, the people's standards. He knows he's not just living up to his own standards, but he knows he's not living up to God's standards too. And this nightmare seems to take a turn for the worse. I mean, huge escalation. Because Joshua is standing there in the presence of an all-seeing, all-knowing God. And it gets much worse for him as well. The devil's there. And your blood runs cold. If you're Zechariah having a dream about this just beastly, horrid figure who takes the oxygen out of the room and this accuser, the devil, Satan, is standing right beside Joshua. He's standing before the Lord. And before we rush into verse 2 and what God does or his response, let's pause and just think for a second on that little white space between the period at the end of verse 1 in the beginning of verse 2. Then the angel showed me Joshua the high priest. He was standing there before an angel of the Lord. And the accuser, Satan, was there at the angel's right hand. Making accusations against Joshua. The Bible says wounds from a friend can be trusted. This is not a friend. This is someone who is hell-bent on destroying you. And they're not going to stop until the job's done. And this is a person, this is a, this is a man, this is Joshua, who of all people is intimately aware of God's holiness. Uh, this high priest, to enter a certain place of the temple, the Holy of Holies, he had to go through all of these different purifications, all of these different cleansings, special clothes, special sacrifices, just to be that near to the presence of God. He knows God's holy. He knows God's perfection. He knows all that he has to go through to offer sacrifices on behalf of the sins of the Israelites. Every day, that's his nine to five. It's his life. Seeing the lifeblood of animals drained out to substitute, to spare the life of the people, the blood of the people. He's intimately aware of how sin corrodes and kills. And here he is in God's presence, and there's no crowd to hide behind. Like right now, there's a crowd to to blend in with, right? to kind of become anonymous sin. There's safety in numbers. There's no safety here. It's Joshua. It's the angel of the Lord. It's the Lord. And it's the accuser. And the devil is verbalizing everything 
that you might feel inside and wonder if other people have noticed about you. And he's saying, you bet your life they've noticed. How insecure you are, they see it every day. It's why no one wants to ever be around you. How annoying your personality is. It's why nobody ever texts you or calls you. The accusations go on. You're a community group leader. I, I know the whole search history. I know what you're too afraid to search for. Your heart wants to, but you're scared someone's going to find out. And so you won't even put it into Google. I know about that. He's verbalizing, he's publicizing your worst nightmares. Accusations that cut to the core of our unholiness. And he's a cosmic tattletale. This is the devil in his prime. Most of the times when scripture let, pulls the curtains back and lets us see this being, he's tattletaling on the people of God to God. And he's kind of like saying, are you asleep at the wheel? Like, who's running this ship? These are priests? These are your best? This is the A-team? Great. Easy case. Slam dunk. Verdict in a minute. Let's talk about the high priest who represents all the other scumbags. Let's just talk about the best of the best. That's his tack. Now, here's something that's fascinating to me. Joshua's response, look at it. Not the Lord's response, not the angel's response. Look at Joshua's response. There isn't one. Which is significant. Why isn't Joshua arguing or debating or saying, whoa, 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 you're really taking this way out of proportion. Why is he sitting there silent? Where do you think his eyes are looking as he's hearing what your internal dialogue picks up just a little bit of. This is a man who probably wishes he could crawl underneath the carpet. This is a man whose eyes are bolted to the floor looking at his feet. This is a man who I think doesn't even whisper a single response or debate or argument because he knows it's true. Or he knows that there's enough truth there that if I argue, it's just more stuff's going to come out. This is a defeated man. He's conquered. There's no coming back from this scandal and the series of scandals that have been unearthed by this whistleblower, the devil. I think we have evidence for this in the passage. Why didn't he say anything? Because the word that this passage uses, that Zechariah uses to describe the condition of Joshua's clothes. It appears a few times in the passage, verse three is one of the places, Joshua's clothing was filthy, which is about as sanitized and cleaned up English word as you could possibly get from the original Hebrew sense, which I'm gonna sanitize and clean up for you, lest I have to bleep the podcast. Fecal material is what he's talking about. That's the Hebrew word. Unfortunately, last night at the Interfreshman Fellowship, I think somebody stepped in some dog mess. And all of us, as the freshmen were like getting in their prayer to go, all of us were like, what is that smell? And then we're like, did someone have an accident? And then someone's like, no, there was a dog outside. Maybe it was that. 
pungent, repulsive, sends people gossiping immediately. Whose dog? Who did it? Who stepped in it? Where is it? Y'all are too young to have fresh experiences of having that stuff on you. There will come a time very soon, if you have children, if you have a little niece and a little nephew, you do nursery duty, where it will be on you, and you will, you will know how you can't get it off of you. Moms and dads know it. Nursery workers know it. Caregivers to the elderly know it. Nurses and doctors know it. And the high priest of Israel, the high priest, smells like it from head to toe. And he is in the presence of God. He's filthy. He's covered in that. Now the question is, what's God going to do? And I hope you're reading yourself into the passage at this point. You who are called a priest. You who Peter says are a royal priest. Sent out by God, unleashed into the world to help and serve and love the world and represent Jesus to the world. I hope you're reading yourself into this at this point. Joshua is a stand-in for the people of God, for the people that he represented as the high priest. It wasn't just him, it was all of Israel and all of us. What will God do when he smells all the stuff that even you might know is there? You might wish it wasn't. We might try to clean it up, but we know it's there. What will he do? Will he agree with the accuser? Apparently, the accuser was making at least half-truthful arguments. There was enough truth to it that Joshua's not arguing. So does God say, um, I mean, if, if, the, if, the, if the passage stopped right here and, I, and God said, y'all finish it, you finish the story, what do you think would come next if you never had any memory of this? What do you think would happen next? Uh, is, is everybody pinching their nose and looking around like, who did it? Who is that? Oh my gosh. Is there laughter? Is there agreement with the accuser? Like, you make some good points. I've noticed that about him too. Been really concerned lately. What's God think about you when he sees you? As you are in yourself. Does he downplay? Uh, there might be some people in the room where you think that God's chief quality is just that he's nice. He's a good guy. So he's like, hey, don't worry about it. It's not that bad. He doesn't do that. Is God embarrassed for you? We don't see any record of that either. The Bible doesn't support any of the responses I just rattled through. If you find your heart thinking that's how he responds... There's something unbiblical in your heart creating suspicion about God. And it has to be attacked. It has to be evicted. The sooner, the better. What does the Bible say? What does God show you? How does he respond to this? He sees us, the first thing, verse two. And the Lord said, to Satan, I'm going to read the whole thing, we'll break it down. The Lord said to Satan, I, the Lord, reject your accusation, Satan. In other words, shut your mouth. Yes, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebukes you. This man is like a burning stick that has been snatched from the fire. And then he says Joshua's clothing was filthy. And then the angel says, 
take off his filthy clothes. Here's the point. Here's the first thing. God sees you as you are. I find this very relieving. The angel agrees his clothes are filthy. The angel's not a southerner and says, hey, don't worry about it. No skin off our back. It's okay. No. He said, when, he, when he gets to the point of changing Joshua's clothes, he says, remove, and remember the Hebrew word for that, remove these repugnant, repulsive, devastated clothes. And why do I find this relieving? And why, why might you find this relieving too? Because it means there's no need to gear up to confess to God. There's no need to find the right words or the right way to put it. He sees you as you are. You can show him who you are. You can talk to him about who you are, about what you've done, about the smell that's there. Um, Addie, my second, came to me a few weeks ago over Christmas break. She had accidentally hurt her brother. I think like really bad. He was screaming. And um, he was trying to get my attention, like, Addie did this to me. And then Addie starts to cry. And I see her across the room and said, Addie, come here. And she starts crying more and she won't come to me. And I said, Addie, come here. I have a lot of bad father moments. By God's mercy, this is one of the better ones. I don't want you to think that I'm some, like, world's best dad. I do need that coffee mug, though. But I said, Addie, why won't you come over here? And she said, I'm scared to tell you. Because I'd asked her, like, what did you do to Noah? What did you do? She said, I'm scared to tell you. And I said, why are you scared? She said, because you'll punish me. And I told her, Addie, you did a great thing by telling Daddy that you were scared to tell him something. Because now Daddy can help you. I can help you tell me. God, in a sense, says to you, if you're scared to own up, scared to be honest, scared to come into the light, scared to say there's an elephant in the room, you, call, you say I'm holy, you say I'm a priest, you say I'm, you're going to send me out in the world. And he says, it's a good thing if you, you tell me that you're scared because now I can help you tell me. And you have your God in that moment instead of just yourself. So God sees us and he's honest with us and he shoots straight with us and he acknowledges that that's how we're clothed. He also springs into action. He is just like a, like a mousetrap, immediate instinct. His response to this. The devil can't even get his cross-examination out and God has leapt up off his chair as it were with two things at least that I see. This soft compassion that wells up in him. The way a father and mother would for a, for a child in distress, even if a child who got itself into distress. Just this immediate instinct. And also this mama bear instinct, this fierce anger that wells up. And you think, okay, where's the anger going? Because who knows how long the accuser is sitting there going through this litany of part true or fully true accusations. How long? Or who's the, who's the anger going to be directed at? And what we see is that he leaps in anger 
towards the accuser, not the accused. And he says, shut your mouth. This is where this stops, right here, right now. And then he advocates for Joshua. He advocates for Joshua. And then he associates with Joshua. As you read yourself into this passage, he associates himself with you. Listen to it, verse 2. He said, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem. Now, we hear that and we're like, oh, cool, Israel. I want to go on the passage trip. Israel's awesome. Jerusalem at this time, this is right after the exile, right after God had evicted his people from the promised land for decades and decades of hard-heartedness and moving away from him. The reputation of the city of Jerusalem was as bad as whatever city you think of in America when you think of kind of a depraved, corrupted, seedy city. Jerusalem was a symbol of all that. It brought up just the worst. And God is saying, Jerusalem, whom I have chosen. I said earlier, does God pinch his nose in embarrassment and look away from his people in their moment of shame. And here God doubles down owning his people, drawing them near to himself. Not throwing them under the bus, not saying, well, I never really knew them that much. But saying, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem. And then he reaches for us. He reaches towards us. So you would think a person in that condition, covered in that kind of stuff. And again, the metaphor is worse than that because this, was, this represented sin and evil and corruption. Our, our inclination is to retract, to go away, to reflex away. And here is God reaching toward us in that moment. And he says, is this, is this man, is Joshua, not a brand plucked from the fire? Or and to say it another word, this is one that I have reached into the fire to spare from destruction, to spare from judgment. Another Christmas break story. I reached into a fire over Christmas break. It wasn't as dramatic as it sounds. Uh, we were having a fire during that really cold week. And I had a big old box of scrap wood. And I was just feeding that fire with this stuff every few minutes, throwing a little bit more to keep it hot. And um, I had just put in a new load of wood. And I pulled the little screenshot. And I looked down into the fire. And I saw something. And instinctively, without even thinking, I reach into the fire. And I pick it up. And I pull it out. It was a piece of maple wood. This is wood scrap from my father-in-law, who's a woodworker. I like to woodwork, and I know what maple looks like. Beautiful wood, dense. It's expensive. It's got this awesome marbling on the wood grain. I could make something of this. The point that I'm making is, A, I didn't even think about it. I knew what that was, and I knew what I could make of it, and I knew it's valuable for that reason. I wanted it, and I reached into the fire to get it. And God is saying to his people, he is saying to his people, not so much you're inherently precious, but that you're precious because I want you. You're precious because I know what I'm making with you. I know what I'm going to make you into. You're valuable because I want you. And in, in, in instinct, he reaches in and plucks out this brand from the fire. 
Lastly, the Lord cleanses us. He cleanses his people. This is where we come full circle to that elephant in the room. How can priests sit out in the world still feeling the way we feel, conflicted and like imposters and dirty? How can they be sent out? Well, this dream, this vision, God says to Joshua in the midst of this, like his ultimate response to him in this uncleanness, God essentially says, as it were, I'll be right back, and he leaves. And he comes back with something that he got out of his drawer. And he says to the attendants, take off those filthy clothes and give him mine. And then he says, as it were, behold, behold, which is kind of like what a dad says to a daughter when she rushes to her room to get her princess dress on and she comes back out and he says, behold, or you look like a million bucks. In this moment, God is looking at Joshua and he's seeing Joshua. We've already established that. But he's also seeing himself. Because Joshua's in his clothes, God's clothes. Ultimately, the answer, the short answer to the question tonight of how in the world could you be qualified or cleaned or set apart as holy to be sent out into the world to be useful and helpful in God's hand in other people's lives? The short answer to that question is because God has qualified you, because God has clothed you in his clothes. I know you're probably like me. And you think about Jesus' righteousness that covers you, and you're like, pants are too short. I look weird. I, can't, I don't really have much range of motion in these, these pants or this shirt. It doesn't really fit my style. It feels deficient, right? Sometimes you feel that way. It's not enough. And I would say to you, the challenge to you is, whose clothes are you wearing and whose drawer, whose closet, whose wardrobe did they come from? God does not clean Joshua's clothes. God does not clean our lives and say, let's tidy up a few things and send you back out into the field. He clothes you in his things. He clothes you in his holiness, his righteousness, even his son. The New Testament talks about being clothed in Christ, who is not deficient. So here's where we end. As we struggle with all the stuff that I was talking about earlier, all those things of other people say, oh, you're a Christian. Oh, you're a community group leader. You're a worship leader. And you're thinking about all the other internal dialogue, the accusations, the filth, all the other stuff. And you're wondering, how, how could I ever be used of God this year before May comes to help my friends draw near to a God who's drawn near to them? How's that going to happen? I want to remind you who's writing this first passage, Peter. This is the same Peter who betrayed Jesus. Not once, not twice, but three times in his moment. He'd spent his whole life training for that moment, and he botched it once, he botched it twice, he botched it three times. And what, I know I'm bouncing around passages here, but what God is doing at the very end of the Zechariah passage is, is this. He puts on new clothes and he turns and he says, 
put a clean turban on Joshua's head. So they put a clean priestly turban on his head and they dressed him in new clothes while the angel of the Lord stood by. God is redressing Joshua as a high priest. He's saying, I've cleaned you. I've associated with you. I've seen you. I've advocated for you. I've loved you. And now I'm putting your uniform back on and I'm sending you back out. Now I'm sending you back out. Not with a halftime locker room pep talk to do better or try harder, but as a new man, I'm sending you back out. This is like sending back out a quarterback who's just thrown four pick sixes in a row. He's blown the game. And the coach has a little face-to-face time with him and he sends him back on the field. So in the weeks ahead, what are we going to do? We're going to remember that we've talked about the elephant in the room. God has made his people holy. Peter says in the end of his passage, how? Peter puts it in a much clearer way than we saw in the passage in Zechariah. He says, you have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus, the sinless, spotless lamb of God. You are covered in him. You are sent out in him. The verdict is in. The love is yours. The cleansing has come. So we're going to remember that every week as we talk about what it means and what it looks like to be a priest who serves in a context of the pressures of exile. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it feels to me like uh, what we talked about tonight is feels pretty personal to all of us. We hear it in a different way. We have very specific things that came to our mind in the past half hour when we were talking about this. I pray that you would preserve enough of our memory of what you have taught us, what you have showed us tonight, that the peace that each of us leaves with and goes back home and back in our week was that peace of filth or that memory or that accusation that you would let us see your response to us in that specific place. Jesus, Make us confident in your calling on our lives to be priests because we know you have cleaned us, we know you have ransomed us, and that you have reconciled us. We pray it in your name. Amen.